This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello and welcome back to Season 2 of Tax Records, our podcasts looking at the latest hot topics in the tax world. This season, we'll be discussing the uh, long-awaited guidance uh, to Section 100A. Uh, we'll also be looking at the issues associated with businesses engaging contractors and recent ATO guidelines around the structuring of professional practices. So in this season, uh, there is something for everyone. My name is Frank Hinopoulos, and I'm a partner in the tax team at Hall & Wilcox. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by my colleague, Todd Bromwich, a senior associate in our tax team. And we're going to discuss section 100A of the Income Tax Assessment Act 1936. And as part of that, we're going to look at the recent federal court decision in the Guardian AIT case, as well as some administrative guidance materials that have very recently been released by the ATO. Hi, Frank. Uh, thanks. It's good to be back for season two of Tax Records. I'm glad season one performance passed muster and Spotify didn't ban us from the airwaves. Uh, it's great to be here to discuss section 100A with you. It's a tricky little section that's been around for a long, long time, uh, but it's still poorly understood. And I think a lot of practitioners have never even heard of it. Uh, so to kick this off, could you just give our listeners a quick overview of what Section 100A is and why it was introduced. Thanks, Todd. Well, um, Section 100A has a uh, long history. It was introduced in 1979, uh, although I, I don't think that that makes it too old because uh, 1979 is also the year that I was born. Like um, a lot of provisions that were bought out then, Section 100A was a, an anti-avoidance provision that had been uh, designed to target uh, especially egregious trust stripping arrangements uh, that were at that time and at that place, um, unfortunately, very prevalent um, in the market. Uh, not that I can uh, remember any of that because I certainly wasn't practicing tax as an infant. Now, of course, uh, we, we see this with, with 100A and we see it with um, other provisions like Section 99B as well. And it, it may have been introduced at a particular time and in a particular context, and it may have had a particular anti-avoidance provision that was informed by that time and by that context, but its actual application technically uh, and its application on its words can be uh, a lot broader uh, than those particular uh, circumstances uh, that existed at the time that they came in, that the, that the provisions were introduced. Okay, so Frank, at a basic level, what does Section 100A actually provide for? So Todd, Section 100A provides that if a beneficiary is presently entitled to a, a share of the income of a trust estate, and that present entitlement arose out of a reimbursement agreement, then the beneficiary is actually deemed to not be presently entitled to that share of the trust's income. So Section 100A attacks present entitlement in respect of income of a trust. Now, 
the key question there is what's a reimbursement agreement? And a reimbursement agreement in broad terms is an agreement providing for the provision of money, property, services, uh, or other benefits from a trust uh, to a person who is not the relevant beneficiary that's been made presently entitled to, to a distribution um, of the trust's income. In circumstances where that arrangement or that agreement has been entered into for the purpose of ensuring that somebody pays less tax than they otherwise would have, but all in subject to, and we'll explore this um, a little later on in this podcast, all subject to a very important exclusion, and that is the exclusion that applies to an arrangement entered into in the course of an ordinary family or commercial dealing. Okay, so if Section 100A applies, what's the practical effect of that? What happens? So, Todd, as I said, if Section 100A applies, uh, then, and I, I might make the point that it is a, a self-executing provision, so it, it doesn't need the, AT, the commissioner to decide or to determine that it applies. But if it does apply, then it attacks the present entitlement uh, to an um, present entitlement a trustee has created to trust income. So by attacking the present entitlement and invalidating the present entitlement, the way that the uh, tax assessment rules operate normally, uh, it means that the trustee will be assessed uh, at the highest uh, in- marginal tax rate plus the Medicare levy, uh, which effectively is around 47% on the amount of the trust distribution. The other point as well, and this is a bit of a, a bit of a sting when it comes to Section 100A, is that it is one of the few provisions that has no, that is outside of the application of the assessment limitation rules. So uh, somebody may be assessed under Section 100A or a trustee may be assessed under Section 100A uh, indefinitely. Uh, Not four years, this is the case with a normal assessment, or even six years, which is the case with Part 4A, but possibly indefinitely. That's a pretty significant consequence, Frank. And many of our listeners, um, our clients and their advisors trust deeds might contain a default distribution clause. So if Section 100A attacks and invalidates a beneficiary's present entitlement, does the default distribution clause uh, kick in? Sure, I mean, just to take a step back uh, for a moment, in case anyone's not familiar with uh, that particular terminology, a default distribution clause uh, generally provides that if the trustee fails to confer a present entitlement, to part of its trust income for a year to a beneficiary of the trust, then the income is automatically deemed to be distributed or deemed to be presently entitled uh, in favour of a particular beneficiary or beneficiaries. So it's almost a backstop uh, should the trustee uh, either intentionally or unintentionally not create a present entitlement under the terms of the trustee. Now, back to your question, uh, the short answer to that is no. The courts have said that where Section 100A applies uh, to an amount of trust income, the effect is that any, uh, the effect of any default or automatic distribution of that income is also disregarded, uh, such that the income will always be assessed to uh, the trustee. 
we've been hearing a bit about Section 100A in recent years. There's been a bit of uptick in discussion about it. Uh, why do you think that is? Sure. I mean, um, we've, we have referred to Section uh, 100A as having undergone or experienced a bit of a renaissance uh, from the perspective of the ATO. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that, Todd. One reason is that uh, the ATO has been looking at trusts and uh, arrangements uh, involving trusts more broadly. And uh, uh, we address some of these compliance target focus areas uh, in our previous podcast last season. So uh, you know, the ATO has the, the resources um, and has the people and has the, the, the technical uh, capacity now to look at more issues concerning trusts. And 100A as a trust anti-avoidance provision uh, is well and truly uh, in the mix. Okay, so you mentioned before that there was some recent administrative guidance. Uh, what do we actually have now and why do you think the Commissioner is acting now? So, Todd, what we have now is uh, two key and important um, pieces of guidance from the ATO. Uh, one is Draft Tax Ruling TR 2022 Draft 1 or D1 and Draft Practical Compliance Guideline PCG 2022 uh, draft one or D1. So the tax ruling uh, sets out the commissioner's views on the scope and application of section 100A and in particular concentrates on what constitutes a reimbursement agreement and when the ordinary family or commercial dealing might apply. The practical compliance guideline, and we've seen a few of these kind of documents being released by the commissioner uh, on a few different areas where there is significant technical uncertainty and compliance risk. But the guidelines here provide a statement of how the commissioner intends to apply compliance resources in reviewing arrangements which involve trusts from the perspective of section 100A. And um, the other part of your question, Todd, is why has the answer? Why has the commissioner acted now? And, and um, my, I, I don't know uh, for sure. Uh, we don't know for a fact, but I would um, imagine that uh, there has been a, quite a call for clarity on Section 100A and the, the ATO's compliance approach and attitude towards it from the profession. And there are a number of matters which are the subject of uh, active. Uh, review and audit and, and some of those matters that we're involved in, uh, which have uh, brought up issues around Section 100A. And there has been, I think, for some time, a focus on the ATO uh, settling on its house view, so to speak, and providing some clarity about that to the market. Okay, so on, Frank, on that first piece of guidance material you mentioned, the tax ruling, which provides the Commissioner's uh, view on the application of the law, does that provide anything that we don't know already? Well, yes and no, Todd. Um, and I think what we have to keep in mind and always keep in mind is that uh, tax rulings are really a statement of the commissioner's opinion or view uh, of the law. I mean, it is not the law and they do not have um, legal effect. But what they do provide is some insight uh, about the uh, Commissioner's uh, attitude and, and his interpretive approach towards the law. And it's very important that we as um, advisors and, and as practitioners uh, have some understanding of that and are incorporating that into the advice and uh, risk-weighted decisions that we're helping our clients make. Okay, so what are the key takeaways from this ruling? 
Sure. So uh, focusing on the ruling for the moment, uh, that um, the ruling itself focuses on a number of key points related to uh, the reimbursement agreement concept. Uh, the first point or the first principle that the ruling discusses is that there must be a connection between uh, the agreement and the present entitlement, the trust income, uh, that the ATO uh, has under review or is examining. The other uh, point is that um, there has to be a benefit provided to another. So this is a really important point. I mean, a reimbursement agreement, at least in the ATO's conception of that term, arises where a present entitlement is created in favour of one party on the papers, so to speak, under the trust resolution, but the real financial benefit of that resolution is enjoyed or is implied, is, is applied to benefit another party. And that's not just um, money or, or, or a distribution in the sense that you would imagine. It actually extends to any application of the trust's property or resources. The third point um, and the third element of a reimbursement agreement, Todd, is that there has to be a tax reduction purpose. So this is where 100A brings in that sort of element or examination of a person's purpose. And, and we see that in tax quite a bit, whether it's part for a or elsewhere. One important thing that I think distinguishes section 100A is that you have to note you know, the deliberate use of the singular tense. It has to be a purpose of the taxpayer to achieve a tax benefit or a tax reduction. It doesn't have to be the only purpose or even the sole or the dominant purpose. And what happens in real life uh, when people are planning their affairs, uh, tax may be um, one thing that they are considering, but there may be a host of other um, objectives or practical considerations as well. For example, the need for asset protection or uh, the need to grow a family pool of wealth or investments. So that purpose element here is um, going to be, in all of these questions, uh, really, really important. And the final element that the ATO covers is the exclusion for ordinary family and or commercial dealings. And uh, with respect to that, the Commissioner says that um, with some reference to the Guardian AIT decision of the Federal Court, that um, ordinary, uh, at the risk of sounding trite or flippant about it, you know, ordinary means ordinary. Uh, it is um, used in contrast to something which is uh, extraordinary, where the circumstances are such that the course of action is not um, uh, something that would occur in the usual course or not consistent with a, um, with, with a, a purpose or a planning objective that doesn't involve uh, tax. Okay, so you mentioned the Guardian AIT case, and I know the Commissioner was unsuccessful in that one, pending appeal. Uh, in the ruling, has the Commissioner accepted the court's reasoning? Well, Todd, and uh, not surprisingly, being a decision of the federal court, uh, yes, they have. Uh, I mean, the Commissioner accepts that uh, the elements of a reimbursement agreement, uh, all of the elements of a reimbursement agreement, must uh, exist and be in place at a particular point in time. And importantly, uh, that agreement has to uh, pre-exist two things. The first being the present entitlement of a beneficiary to trust income. 
that being the present entitlement, of course, that the ATO will at the same time be looking to attack as being connected to a reimbursement agreement. And the second is the provision of a benefit of a benefit to a person other than the beneficiary. So the court in Guardian AIT basically said that that had to be preordained, that, that somebody other than the uh, intended beneficiary or the beneficiary intended to benefit from the trustee's action in resolving to distribute or apply income in their favour, uh, that the, the true financial benefit attributable to that would be enjoyed by a different party that had to be preordained at the time the arrangement was created or entered into. Now, of course, the Commissioner does temper this uh, by saying that uh, these matters will be informed and the evidence will arise from the conduct of the parties, both before and in the lead up to, as well as after and in the aftermath of uh, the relevant uh, arrangements uh, that um, have given rise to uh, the establishment of a, a, an agreement at a, at a particular time. Well, it all sounds like a bit of a mess, to be honest, Frank, and it seems like it could be a bit of a nightmare practically for taxpayers and their advisors to navigate these issues day to day. Does the practical compliance guideline help us at all? Well, the answer to that, Todd, is in some ways it does, and in some, many ways, it, it doesn't. Uh, what the practical compliance guidelines do is it gives us uh, some flags to swim between. Um, and what the debate is all about is really uh, whether, uh, you know, where those flags are planted uh, gives us a safety zone that is um, narrower uh, than we thought. And that makes uh, a lot of arrangements that have been vanilla and mainstream for a long time uh, now suddenly more risky for our uh, taxpayer clients. So I've read the practical compliance guideline and uh, like many of them, like the ones we've seen in transfer pricing or GST, that they, they do break it down into the zones. We have, you know, we have the, the white zone, which is uh, pre-1 July 2014 arrangements, which is, of course, around the time that the ATO published their online web guidance on 100A. Uh, and they say, you know, they won't apply any compliance resources to review those historical arrangements. We have the green zone, which is your, your fairly safe vanilla arrangements um, all above board where the ATO says, we don't think that these arrangements are an issue. We have the blue zone, which is this, um, this purgatory no man's land uh, where the ATO says you might, be, uh, you might be looked at, you might be in trouble here, but we would have to look at all of the, all of the facts, all of the circumstances. And then we get up to the red zone, the danger zone, which is your, your fairly egregious ones where the ATO confirms that if, if you enter into this type of arrangement, you will be reviewed and uh, you, know, we, you will be a target of ours. And of course, you know, danger zone brings in considerations of Top Gun, which you know, me and you, Frank, in the office, I gotta say, I would be Maverick and you would have to be Goose. And I demand that a mustache comes in on Monday to confirm. Well, uh, I, I don't quite know about that uh, type. <laughs> and I, I, I did, uh, it, it, it didn't go unnoticed that um, you, uh, you you gave a title to our article based on your favourite 80s movie and soundtrack. Um, That's right. I've got a good good eight inches of height on him, so I'll settle on that. <laughs> but uh, no, that was uh, a, a, a very nice... Uh, very nice flourish. Um, 
Nice try, but uh, no, uh, I'm Maverick and you're Goose. Anyway, I mean, we have certainly seen uh, practical examples of arrangements that fall uh, into um, all of those zones, uh, including um, the uh, red zone. And uh, to give an example of that, so we actually are uh, running a, a, a matter for a taxpayer at the moment that involves uh, this very fact pattern. And it is also the fact pattern uh, that was addressed in the Guardian AIT decision. And that's called, or what's come to be known as the, the washing machine arrangement, where you have a trust uh, that earns income, uh, say, in the form of frank dividends, and it distributes those uh, amounts as a trust distribution to a corporate beneficiary uh, where the trustee is the sole shareholder of that corporate beneficiary. And then the corporate beneficiary effectively pays up uh, those amounts uh, to the trustee as a frank dividend. And this arrangement and flow of funds, a trust distribution into the corporate beneficiary and a dividend out, uh, repeats and recurs uh, over a period of time. I mean, that's an arrangement that the commissioner has identified here as being a red zone, you know, uh, arrangement. If, if that's what you have, you're certainly on the highway to the danger zone. Uh, but I think um, as the Guardian AIT decision illustrates, as well as many other matters that are under review uh, presently, that even an arrangement like that, you know, despite what the ATO's reactive uh, view about it may be, that uh, could be explicable by a number of different things and a number of uh, considerations that would have um, uh, that would be separate to and aside from uh, any tax-related considerations, including uh, considerations relating to asset protection or other things along that line. It's interesting, Frank, that the ATO would put out these guidance materials uh, while a court decision is pending appeal, and that's the, the Guardian AIT case, which is now heading to the full federal court. Is there any reason why that may be? I mean, uh, I agree with you, Todd. It was... Uh, an interesting decision to put that out now, particularly when the commissioner has um, appealed the Guardian AIT um, uh, decision of the federal court um, when it was heard by uh, a single judge. Uh, I mean, I think there's a fair amount of pragmatism and, and practicality uh, in that decision. Um, an appeal uh, to the full federal court could take a long time to be heard and then to be determined. Um, and there would be uncertainty about the outcome. And I don't know that the ATO necessarily wanted to continue or perpetuate uh, the current uncertainty um, for that period of time. Uh, it Also the fact that there are, um, you know, in the practical world, a number of real life audits and real life taxpayers who are being affected uh, by these, uh, by the view on 100A and, um, there was some impetus on the ATO to uh, try and get out its view, uh, um, to make it publicly available, albeit in draft form and subject to further consultation uh, with some haste. Okay, thanks, Frank. Well, just to round out today's discussion, do you have any practical advice that we can leave our listeners with? Certainly, Todd, and, and um, as hopefully our, our listeners will know, we are practical people and uh, we like to give practical advice. And just a couple of things that I wanted to leave people with today. Uh, firstly, uh, just to reiterate that uh, since 2010, we've been hearing a lot about Section 100A. We've seen it um, in lots of reviews and lots of audits, and it has been an ATO focus area. 
And in particular now, uh, with the practical compliance guidelines and the rulings, uh, you know, advisors, I mean, our, our professional colleagues who give tax advice uh, are on notice that um, there are arrangements which will be uh, considered to be high risk and which um, will be reviewed. So uh, further um, uh, unwanted attention from the ATO uh, should be expected for those who have arrangements that would fit into the higher risk uh, categories. The other thing as well is um, I mean, having uh, put this information into the public domain and put it into the hands of advisors, uh, we certainly need to be, uh, as advisors, aware of the need to be uh, providing information to our, to our clients when they're structuring their affairs or, or even when they are continuing affairs, that, uh, the, the arrangements or affairs that they currently have in place to ensure that they are making appropriate and risk-weighted decisions. The, the ATO has been clear about the arrangements that it regards to be uh, high risk. And um, if a taxpayer is or is contemplating a high risk arrangement, that's fine, that's up to them, but uh, they should that they need to be apprised of those uh, risks and that, that situation and, and uh, that they may have a greater exposure to ATO scrutiny uh, at some point in the future. And uh, we as advisors need to ensure that we're um, arming our clients with that information. And if we don't, some advisors may have been found to have uh, aggravated their clients' problems as opposed to uh, assist in uh, resolving them. And I think the final point uh, I want to make, Todd, is, is and this comes from practical experience, uh, is that um, you know Section 100A reviews and Section 100A audits uh, are very much a forensic exercise. You know, a lot depends on the facts, and we've spoken about that today. You know, what is the evidence of the arrangement, and what is the evidence around when the arrangement came into being? Uh, what is the evidence about a uh, taxpayer's purpose, um, and if you are, and I hope not too many of our listeners are, but if people are involved in an ATO audit that concerns Section 100A, uh, you, you should expect uh, the, the complexity to come not necessarily only from the legal and technical arguments that you have to make and, and debate with the ATO, but also that ATO fact-finding exercise. So, you know, you should fully expect, for example, that you're your clients will be called in for formal interviews. Uh, the commissioner will exercise his, his information gathering powers to collect documents uh, that may include um, uh, advice from accountants uh, that raises important questions about whether that can be in any way sheltered, uh, either by uh, professional privilege, uh, which is available to lawyers, uh, or uh, the accountant's concession, which has significant limitations. Uh, and really, I mean, be prepared to have arguments and a complex argument based on the facts and based on the evidence. Yeah, so there are still some unknowns with Section 100A, but, you know, we have the Guardian AIT appeal coming up and we know of at least one other federal court proceeding uh, in relation to Section 100A that we expect a decision on soon. So we hope that they will provide some additional judicial guidance uh, and we'll be writing about any developments on our website and on LinkedIn and if the changes are significant, we may even provide an update in season three of tax records. So watch this space and hopefully there will be some more guidance coming soon. Uh, but thanks, Frank, and thanks to all of you for tuning into today's episode. Uh, we hope you'll join us next week 
where we'll be talking about the tax issues involved with engaging contractors in your business. Uh, if you have any questions about what we've covered today, uh, please contact a member of our tax team. You can find our details on our website, paulandwilcox.com.au, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and follow our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, you can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Thank you.